several of the uh, uh, those who spoke during sharing time here and, and the testimony of you continuing to work in our lives and we invite you to do that Father sometimes we, we resist that and yet we know that um, uh, that only comes from selfishness and in our own heart um, but we really do want you to continue to refine us and mm-hmm. work in our lives and, and we ask you to Amen. do that Father, where we do resist it, resist it, remind us mm-hmm. that it is in that purification uh, that ultimately is a blessing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just are grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to all of you to this part of the service. I, uh, we were out to Eli's as well, and I just, I just told Eli, just think of it as turning 20 for the fourth time. <laughs> it sounds better. <laughs> yeah, I want to welcome you uh, to uh, the study of Romans and uh, just to the part of uh, our service when we break the bread of God's word together. Well, throughout the years, I've attempted to put one single informational statement in front of all who attend here. That statement is simply this. In this assembly, you are welcome to ask any questions. I believe that that statement quietly says a number of things about us. That in this church family, corporately, there's a healthy understanding of God's word. That corporately there's some balance in this assembly. And that we are confident of those things that we know and believe to be true. That in this assembly there's a, a measure of maturity. Secondly, I believe it expresses our desire for that all who attend here, that they would know God in a real, deep, and personal way. The scripture says God showed to the children of Israel his acts, but to Moses his ways. We want you to know the ways of God. We want you to know why truth works. We long for there to be depth and understanding in your walk with God. And we not only want you equipped for life, but we want you to be able to equip others for life. We want you to multiply the kingdom of God. There's a third aspect that I think it says about us. That is our desire for this assembly to be a safe place. Our desire for you to really be you. We don't ask you to be anyone else in this assembly. 
And that in this assembly, we really value the special and unique way that God has created you. I've equally tried to put that statement in front of all of our youth. Our youth are the energy of our church today, and they are the wisdom of the church tomorrow. And they are incredibly savvy when it comes to information. They have at their fingertips unprecedented amounts of information. And they're going to get answers about life from someone. I happen to believe that this church, and if you allow me just for a moment to be a little biased, yes, I mean this church, has some of the best and wholesome answers to life. If they don't get them from us, they're going to get it from someone. It might be an atheist professor, a barroom buddy, or just another wandering youth. They're going to get some answers about life. That's why we must be continually open to exploring new vistas of truth so that we remain relevant, honest, open, and fresh. And Romans 14 certainly would qualify as one of those areas. Um, how to deal with controversy and differences and disputes within the church congregation. Uh, few of us are, are strangers to controversy in a church. Uh, I suppose if we were all to be honest, we've seen enough controversy in a church to last us a lifetime. And um, many of you have seen the, the damage that raw, unchecked emotion can do in a, in a church. Uh, relationships that, that have been built for years, destroyed in a very short time. And the sad truth is that a very small percentage of those church controversies actually are about doctrine. The larger percentage, probably 95 and above percent, are about little things, gray areas that we don't quite agree on. The result is division. Man's answer, it seems, invariably to differences that we can't agree on is division. Brethren, I'm going to tell you this morning, God has a much better answer than that. God has a much better answer. You know, the longer I live, the more I'm convinced of how much better it is when resolutions have more of God's fingerprints on them than mine. And uh, Romans 14 has God's fingerprints all over it. It is pure. It is peaceable. It is gentle. It's easily to be entreated. It is full of mercy and good fruits. It is without partiality and without hypocrisy. How to deal with differences in the church such an amazing piece of scripture. And that's why I, I'm not afraid to stand before you and boldly declare Romans 14 as a way to resolve differences in the church. Why is, Rome, why is it so important that the church is able to resolve differences? Why is that such a huge aspect? Let me show you. In John chapter 17, we have an account of a man who knew exactly when he would die. And we have an account how he would spend the last 24 hours of his life. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think if I knew I was, had 24 hours, I would spend it with those I love most, and we'd be talking about the things that are most important in life. Do you know that Jesus, we have an account of Jesus, of talking about the things, the last hours of his life that were most important to him. John 17, he's speaking to his disciples, and he's praying, and it says in verse 20, neither pray for these alone, he's talking about the disciples, but for them which also believe on me through their word. He's talking about you and I. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou hast given, givest me, I have given them, that they, all may, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, and, thou, and that thou hast loved me. Being one in heart, working together. Notice that. Three times, Jesus prays and pleads with the Father that those of us who come after, that we might be one. Why is that so important? Because our oneness, our unity, is at the heart of the evangelistic message we have. When we sacrifice each for each other, we forgive each other, we help each other, we love each other, it brings credence, relevance, and authenticity to the gospel message that Jesus Christ is the sent one. That he's the Messiah and the Savior of mankind. Do you understand why it's so devastating when Christians fight and destroy each other? Jesus pleaded with the Father that they might be one, that we might experience the oneness, that closeness that he had with the Father, that we might experience that with him and with each other. John 13, 35 adds this, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. So it's incredibly important that we love each other, that we build each other up, that we live unselfishly, and that we prefer one another. Did you put others in this congregation before yourself? It's why Paul gives us three tools, and the first part of Romans 14 reminds us that we're all on the same team, we all are under the same Lord. It doesn't matter if someone's sitting on the opposite side of an issue. We have the same Lord. And that we all will give an account before the judgment seat of Christ for our attitudes. But Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us some tools. Then he's going to give us some deeper truths that are behind these tools, why they work. Notice what he says, Romans 14, 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus there is nothing unclean of itself, but notice what it says, to, us, 
To him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. These kinds of truth make us very uncomfortable. It stretches us. Um, he's saying these gray areas, some of these gray areas, in and of themselves are neutral, and whether the right and wrong is dependent upon the heart, the faith, the maturity, the understanding of the one who picks it up. So it could be the one who esteems it to be unclean, to him it is unclean, and it could be equally true that the one who esteems it to be clean, to him it is clean. Here's why we struggle with some of these deeper truths. Because we come from a background with a one-size-fits-all application. And these deeper truths force us to move beyond that. There's another reason why we are hesitant to embrace these kinds of truths. And that is we don't entirely trust each other. And therefore, we like to turn to external controls. We're afraid with these kinds of truths will make people run wild. But I want you to see the incredible balance of the Apostle Paul, and more specifically of God. Notice what he says in the very next breath, the very next verse, notice what Paul says. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably, destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. You see, Paul, the balance that Paul brings in in the very next breath, he's saying, wait a minute, there are limits to your liberty, to the freedom you have, and that is your brother who is still weak. There's some things he hasn't grown in, so your liberty, liberty is limited to the brother who still needs to grow some time to grow. He isn't giving a green light to anyone to run wild. In fact, let me just be very crystal clear about this. Anyone who is inconsiderate with their liberty when it comes to others in the church body is walking outside God's direction. There's such a healthy balance. Our liberty is meant to build others up in the body of Christ. It's not meant to destroy them. So we're given some, some, some deeper truths and uh, then he's going to give us how we pull this off. In 15, Romans 15, he gives us the, how this actually is, gets put into practice, how we do it personally. In verse 1, he says, We then that are strong... That means those of us who have faith and there's some maturity in you, those of you that are capable and have some understanding, we ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves. You see the balance again? It's freedom with responsibility. 
don't just please yourself, but it means you ought or it means you're obligated to lift the understanding and the faith of those that are weaker in the congregation. You're to use your freedom in a positive way. He's saying liberty has limits. Those limits are your brothers and sisters who still lack understanding and who still need some room to grow. It's how we keep the liberty within this congregation healthy. The more freedom God gives us, the more responsibility that comes with that freedom. It is never a license to run wild. God never gives us that license. It's always in a positive sense. It's about building others up. Now, if our goal is building others up, we're going to need a role model, we're going to need an example, and we're going to need somebody to show us how this works. And that, well, he says, let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Again, there's there's the positive sense Our freedom is about building others up in the body of Christ. So you know what the Apostle Paul does? He puts in front of all of us Jesus. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. Paul is quoting Psalm 69.9, and he's saying the insults and the taunts that were hurled uh, at us were placed upon Christ. For a moment, I want you to stop and just, just consider Christ. I want to use Philippians 2 to help you see this. For even Christ pleased, Philippians 2, let this mind be in you which was in Christ, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was equal with the Father. But you know what he did? He humbled himself, and it says he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. First step is he humbled himself. Jesus did not come as a king. He came as a servant. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. And being found in his fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. He took upon our our sin, our shame, our guilt. He went to the cross, and he paid. He tasted and paid for your hell and my hell. You see, if Jesus is able to do that for you, couldn't you possibly sacrifice a few things that you have every right to do there's someone else in this congregation that's just a little weaker than you. Couldn't you be able to give up momentarily for someone else who just needs a little time to grow? Could you do that? You see, that's our example. He did not come to serve himself, and he had every right to do that. But he, he, he sacrificed his rights to serve others, even to death. 
You see, the Apostle Paul is glancing back to the Old Testament as he does this. He's glancing back at the Old Testament. And he says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, may, that we through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. The Old Testament does three things for us. The first thing that the Old Testament does is it teaches us. As we look at the, the Old Testament, at the Old Testament saints, we can see how God works in people's lives. And we can see what happens when they live rightly, and we can see what happens when they disobey God. We, it teaches us, by looking at some of these Old Testament saints, just, it teaches us about the, the character of God. There's something else that the Old Testament does. It comforts and it encourages us. You know, as, as you look at some of the, these, these Old Testament saints, some of their lives, uh, Joseph is a great example. This guy suffered, was misused, and in the end you see the, the, the sovereignty of God prevail. Doesn't it encourage you when you look at some of these? It seems like the good will never win, and ultimately in the end it does. And you're encouraged as you, as you see the faithfulness of God prevail. There's a third thing in that it does. It gives us hope. The Old Testament is kind of like a coat rack that you can hang your faith upon. It gives you hope. You look back, and you, uh, even today, as we look at some of the events of today, it helps by looking back at the Old Testament and seeing the faithfulness of God. That it gives us hope that God, in the end, will prevail. It just gives us hope. Now that we understand that, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may be with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, again, I, wanna, I want all of you to understand when we are willing to do things God's way, we get God's result. And when we do things man's way, we get man's results. Now, let me give you some understanding what it means to be of one mind and to be like-minded. In God's orchestra, the Apostle Paul is not saying we all play the same instrument and that we necessarily all see some things exactly alike. No. We all play different instruments. Some of you play the French horn the violin, uh, the flute, the cello. We play dis different instruments, but as we turn our attention to Jesus Christ, the director, harmony prevails. You understand what's happening? We blend together 
And there's a symphony of praise that goes up to God. I mean, if you didn't know God, you'd think it was magic. How so many different people blend together and become one. You know, that's what makes the church contagious. I'm convinced there are two aspects in a church that make us absolutely contagious. One is consistent encouragement, and two, unity. Different people working together with one heart, one purpose, one mind. I just think when people see that, they're just saying, wait a minute, there's something about that I, I need to have. Verse 7, Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ received us to the glory of God. We exemplify unity by receiving each other, by fellowshipping with each other, by, by building each other up, by sacrificing for each other. You know, as a pastor, you, you don't know what it means to us we see you're able to put your arms about around people that don't come from our background. Just putting your arms, building them, loving them, accepting them, teaching them as a team, together. The Apostle Paul shows us an example, Christ, in verses 8 through 12, how that Jesus brought... The circumcision and the uncircumcision together. Notice what he says. And now I say that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this cause will I confess thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise over the Gentiles, and in him shall the Gentiles trust. The ministry of Jesus was one of reconciliation, bringing people together. And I want you to see in Ephesians 2, how beautiful the life of Christ was. You see, Jesus did not just pray for oneness. He lived oneness in such a way that unity was produced. Notice this. Notice it was what it says in Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were, were far off are made nigh. That's us Gentiles, by the way. We're made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle of wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in the ordinance, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God, he's talking Jew and Gentile, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And he came and preached Peace to you which were afar off. That's a Gentile. It's you and I. And to them that were nigh. That's the Jew. 
For through him, we both have access. There's the clincher. We both have access by one spirit unto the Father. And now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. I want you guys to get this. Jesus did not just preach oneness. He didn't just pray for oneness. He lived his life in such a way that oneness prevailed. He brought us together. We were fueled for the fires of hell as Gentiles. We were outside. But because of his life, because of his being a servant, because of sacrificing, he brought us together. Thank God he did. Do you realize that that truth still works today? If you're willing to humble yourself, and to live your life as a servant, you're willing to put others in front of you, before you. Oneness, oneness, unity still will prevail. It'll continue. It just works. We can't just talk oneness. You have to put something into it. And it applies to all of us, pastors alike. Let me finish with a true story. During the height of the Civil War, on the Confederate side, there was a private who just made sergeant. Sergeant Richard Rowland Kirkland. Sergeant Kirkland had been given command of a unit, and on December the 13th, 1862, there was a, there was a fierce battle with the Union forces. It was the Battle of Fredericksburg, and the Confederates had inflicted heavy casualties on the Union side. And then on the morning of December the 14th, the morning light revealed some 8,000 men who had died or were wounded in the no-man's land between the Confederates and the Union Army. Even as the fire continued between the two forces, you couldn't miss the groans and the cries of the wounded in the no-man's land between them. Many of the cries were of pain and for water. At some point during the day, Sergeant Kirkland approached Brigadier General Joseph Kershaw, and uh, Sergeant Kirkland expressed a desire to help the wounded Union soldiers. He was a Confederate, remember this. General Kershaw denied his request. A little later, Sergeant Kirkland again approached General Kershaw, and he says, I can't bear to listen to the cries of the wounded. And again, he asked permission to go minister or to help the Union, the wounded Union soldiers. Could I please take them water, General General Kershaw asked, have you, have you considered the consequences? He said, yes, I have, sir. And then Kirkland asked permission to wave a white handkerchief as he would go out into the no man's land. General Kershaw denied him that request. And so Sergeant Kirkland dropped his rifle, and he, he collected all the canteens and blankets he could carry, and he stepped out into that no man's land, as the bullets continued to fly. 
And one by one, he stooped to those Union soldiers and he gave them water and he gave them blankets. As the Union officers observed his actions and seen his mission of mercy, they, they halted, they ordered the ceasing of fire. The Confederates responded likewise. And for the better part of probably two hours, General Sergeant Kirkland went from soldier to soldier, giving them water and blankets. Some legends say both sides cheered as, as Kirkland went from soldier to soldier. You know, I don't suppose that you and I are ever going to hear the world cheer. But I like to think as we stoop, help someone that's wounded, hurting, weak, or helpless. We risk our lives for each other. I like to think that for a brief moment the world pauses and sees real love real peace. And that for that moment, they don't see you or me. They see Christ. Paul closes then with a prayer. In verse 13, he prays for a church Praise for the Romans. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Brethren, God is calling us today to link our arms together. Not talk about oneness. He's talking about living oneness. about humbling yourself, being a servant, and putting others first in this congregation. You know, as I considered where we are at and what we have in front of us next week, I, I couldn't think of a better place to stop here. This is an excellent scripture. God's asking us to link arms. And as I consider that, I felt impressed this morning to ask a commitment from you. If you're willing to commit to be a servant like Jesus was, you're willing to, to take brothers and sisters in this congregation, you're willing to put them in front of you, I'm asking you to step out of your seats outside around the perimeter of this church house and to link arms with others who are making that commitment. I'm just asking you to step out and hold arms, and then I want to close with the prayer that Paul prayed for the Romans.
Let's pray. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. Thank you for just for answers in Scripture. Lord, thank you for your fingerprints upon these scriptures. Thank you that there are godly answers to differences in a church congregation. Lord, I'm grateful this morning that oneness isn't something we just talk about. It's something that's possible to be lived, unity. I'm grateful that it's possible as we turn our eyes and, and our, our attention to you, Lord, the director that with many gifts and differences of opinion, we can work as one. As one team, and that our working as one makes the message of our gospel real to the world. Now, Father, we, we close with the words of the Apostle Paul as he, he considered the Romans. And now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Father, it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this, and all of God's children said, Amen. Um, you may be dismissed.